0: So again, we're going to pick up our study in the book of Acts, um, chapter 17, and today we'll start in verse 22. And the title of today's message is Times of Ignorance, Times of Ignorance, Acts 17, 22. And uh, last time we saw that Paul and Silas, they were freed from prison, that they had the opportunity to get out when uh, there was an earthquake and the doors opened. They had the opportunity to get out when basically the cops came and said, you guys can go now. But they said no, they waited for the magistrates to come and let them out because they didn't want to let them off the hook that easily for um, imprisoning Roman citizens for no real reason. But then they encouraged the believers and they left uh, the area, but Paul had no place to go, so they stuck him on a boat and put him in the water as we remember. They ended up going to Athens, uh, a major Greek city of the day um, and as Paul walked around in Athens waiting for his friends Silas and Timothy to come out, to come and meet him. Uh, he was provoked in spirit. He saw a city that was given over to idolatry, a city that uh, knew nothing of the living and true God, and he couldn't just uh, to, just stand by. You know, we knew about Paul's custom, where when he would go into a city, he would find a synagogue and reason with them in the scriptures. We saw Gentiles and Jews uh, be saved through that process, but he couldn't wait for his friends, and he began to go out and basically speak with anyone that he could get um, an ear with. But just to set the stage for uh, today's uh, study, uh, we're going to be looking at a group of people who were uh, philosophers, who were political leaders, um, we had seen recently that uh, this area, they liked a lot of circular reasoning where they would get together and they would talk and they would have these high-minded conversations. But at the end of the day, they, they necessarily wouldn't have um, gained any real ground, so to speak. They just would have expressed a new idea or heard a new idea and talked about it and said, let's talk about it again next week and next week. And and this idea of, well, yeah, they were exercising their mind, but they weren't, they were just going um, in circles. Uh, And we also saw last week about God's reasoning, where God wants to reason with us. Where there's a reason for his coming, there's a reason for the scriptures, and from those scriptures we can make a reasonable decision to believe in God. That it's not just this uh, pie-in-the-sky spaghetti monster, but it's a real God, a living God, and the scriptures uh, reveal that um, in truth. And we can even test the scriptures, as the Bible says. But When it comes to uh, reasoning in our day and age, uh, this is, our society loves to reason. There has to be a reason for things. People pick apart movies and political candidates and, and ways of life. And uh, and we've come up with our own ideas. We've come up with our own ideas of what right is and what wrong is. We've come up our, with our own ideas of what's fashionable, what's not fashionable. Um, and these things, I guess, can be stated as societal norms. You know, I only took probably a semester of sociology. But I remember learning about mores and societal rules. But as Google would define it, societal norms uh, or mores are the rules of behavior that are considered acceptable in a group or society. People who do not follow these norms may be shunned or suffer some kind of consequence. And we think about our society today, or any society really, where they have these norms and what do they base these norms on, whether it's their religion or whether it's their ideas, and you have to kind of conform to these norms. And our society really, uh, Western culture, has kind of gone through an upheaval, and especially American upheaval in the past 50, 60 years, where everything that was the norm, everything that was accepted, we've said, well, because it's accepted we're just gonna throw it out. Because it's accepted, we're gonna rebel against it and we're gonna come up with our own ideas of what's right and wrong. Um, But have you ever overlooked something? Maybe a number, maybe a date, maybe rent was due and it's the second of the month. Oops, I forgot to write that check. Maybe uh, it was a date or someone's name, you just met someone new and you forgot their name or maybe you're at the checkout counter and you didn't realize that they have a name on their name tag. Have you ever lost something? Maybe you lost a dog. I lost my dog when I was little. We found her a couple weeks later. I remember going to see a movie and being really sad because it was about dogs and cats that got lost. And I was like, where's my dog? Um, maybe you've lost your car in the parking lot. I share with you how uh, a couple months ago I went to the mall and I lost my car because I didn't know which parking garage it was in. Maybe you've lost the TV remote and had that panic moment. Where's the TV remote? Flipped all the cushions all over and, and still can't find it. Uh, maybe it's your glasses. Maybe it's your glasses. I don't know if you wear glasses or contacts or whatever, but maybe you've put them down and you didn't realize where they were. But have you ever had that thing that you lost or overlooked be right in front of you? Where are my glasses? Oh, they're on my head. (laughs) Where are my keys? Oh, they're in my pocket. You know, Things like that nature. Where's the remote? Oh, I was sitting on it (laughs) the whole time. (laughs) You guys on the couch are thinking, am I sitting on a remote right now? But but it it's ever been right in front of you, you know, uh, last night, uh, I forget what we were doing. I don't know if it was before dinner or after dinner, but the kids were playing and Asher and I were cleaning up or something. And uh, all of a sudden it was quiet and we didn't hear Jacob anymore. We saw Mia, but we didn't see Jacob. I think Asher was in the kitchen cleaning up something. I was cleaning up something in the bedroom. And we're like, where's Jacob? Jacob, Jacob. We went in here, went over there. I had this door open. I was like, where is he? And then we turned around and he's underneath the table. <laughs> you know, so thankfully he was just right under our noses uh, the entire time. But back to our society, you know, our society, they exalt knowledge, but not reason. We love to exalt knowledge, but I think if we look closely, we realize that reason uh, and true reason is really excluded. We exalt logic, but I think it's only when the answers meet our expectations. You know, we only will accept this answer if it meets this theorem we have or this expectation we have. Um, The society worships equality, being whoever you think you are. And I'm not saying that equality in certain areas is wrong, but I'm saying that I think we worship that as a society. But we worship the equality as long as you don't hold an opposing view. You can be equal as long as you don't disagree. (laughs) It's very interesting. You know, reminder, Isaiah 118, we read it last week, says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as well and this morning lord we pray that you'd help us reason out through scriptures that god you would reveal your word to us um, reveal the things that are going on practically around us god but would you even more than that um, reveal your love for us and god help us to know you more and uh, just be drawn near to you this morning in your word and by your spirit we love you god in jesus name amen so we'll pick it up in acts chapter 17 verse 22 And it says, we're only going to read a couple verses. We're actually going to read um, smaller chunks as we finish out Acts 17 this morning. But we'll read 22 and 23 together. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Him I proclaim to you, and we'll stop there for right now. We, just remember who Paul is. Paul was once Saul. <coughs> Paul was a Jewish man, but he was born a Roman citizen. He was born in, in Turkey in Tarsus. He was very highly educated. Um, you know, he went up through Gamaliel's school. He was very religious, very devout, very uh, looked up upon uh, by his peers. But he ended up being a murderer. He went out and in his religious zeal, as you remember, he went and murdered people in the church and threw people in prison for believing in Jesus. But at some point, God got a hold of him. We remember that when God reached him on that road. Um, He humbled him. He was forgiven and he was repented. So remember this man, Paul, probably didn't look Greek, probably didn't act Greek. Maybe he spoke Greek very well. I don't know. Um, But he's here. Obviously, he had some way of communicating with them, so I wouldn't be surprised but he's at the areopagus and this word really means the aries rock the aries rock um, but it's aries it's the greek god of war uh, if you guys are familiar with romans it's mars it's a roman name you know the whole everyone wants to go to the planet mars now mars is named after uh, the god of war you know the romans really when they took over greek culture was big hellenistic culture greek culture was big the Romans came in and took over, took over all the land of the Greeks and their empire. And basically they just sort of amalgamated a lot of the Greek culture and customs into Roman culture and gave them different names. You know, the Greek God Zeus becomes the Roman God, Jupiter, the Greek God Ares becomes the Roman God Mars. They just kind of slap a new label on it and continue uh, with their business. Um, and it's similar, you know, when uh, the Roman empire became Christian, so to speak, under Constantine, the, the, the effect was very similar. Uh, you know, the reason why we celebrate Christmas on December 25 is because of the Roman holiday Saturnalia, which is on December 25, Saturnalia, Saturn, there is this worship festival goes on. The reason why we celebrate Easter on Easter, well, tep- typically there's Passover. That's why believers would, but Easter comes from this same idea of Ishtar and all these different things that we could, we could line it up to the past. But um, this was the culture. This was the society. Greek had been big, Greece had been big, but now Rome was the ruling authority. And to get into a, a quick ancient Greek history lesson, um, you know I took four years of Latin. Three of those were Latin two in high school, so shows you yeah, how much I know. But the origin of its name is not clear. In ancient Greek, uh, the name means a big piece of rock. Um, Arios could have come from Ares, the god of war, we talked about, or from Erinys. I'm not saying that right, but as on its foot was erected a temple dedicated uh, to the Erinys, uh, where murderers used to find shelter. So as not to face the consequence of their action, which is interesting. Um, Later, the Romans referred to the Rocky Hill as Mars Hill. In pre-classical times, before 500, uh, 5th century BC, the Areopagus was the council of elders of the city, similar to the Roman Senate. So while Greece still kind of had more autonomy and more power, this place was uh, not only a place of thinking, but a place of political rule and political judgment. And as we read uh, earlier, where it was even a a sense of uh, courts for murder trials. Um, uh, later on, they, they took that away, but the term Areopagus also refers to a judicial body of or, aristocratic excuse me origin that subsequently formed the higher court of modern Greece that This idea that these people who are wealthy and influential were the court of the land, and that name even carries through to modern Greece today. But Ares, like we uh, talked about, was Mars in Roman culture. He often represents the physical or violent or untamed aspect of war, in contrast to his sister, the Amaret Athena, which is the city Athens that they're at actually, whose functions as a goddess of intelligence include military uh, strategy and generalship. So Ares has got a war, but it's not just the whole idea of war or strategy. He's really more the barbaric side of war there. Um, but this this hill where they where they uh, worship or they went for. Uh, political ideas and philosophical ideas and even murderers at some point used to come here and it's interesting that Paul is now here and sharing. Um, it overlooked Athens. You know, you couldn't miss it. You drove into town, you're not going to miss it. You're up here, you've got the whole city to look on and to consider. Um, and it, it's very interesting that uh, Paul, when he's there, he says, that I perceive that in all things, you are very religious, that individually as people, but also collectively as a society, they had become very religious. And that could be in a good sense, you know, where they reverenced the gods that they worshipped. You know, that's, technically it's not a good sense, but if you think about it in that way, it could be a good sense uh, that they were very pious or religious, but also in a bad sense that they were very superstitious. You know, this, this idea of all these gods and all these things in these cultures also had this idea of superstition where if something bad was happened. you know, uh, the gods were bringing judgment on your life or, you know, you didn't want to do this or you didn't want to do that. You need to make sure uh, that everything was uh, said in your life. And we think of even today where people might bury a statue in their backyard to, to get their house to sell. Or um, like when Paul uh, uh, crash landed with that uh, boat, as we'll read, on the island and the, the natives come out and they see him get bit by the snake out of the the sticks and he doesn't die. They say, oh, well, (laughs) you know, he must be something special. You know, they thought at first when he was going to die that it was a God's bringing judgment on his life. But much like today, the world says it hates religion unless it's the one world religion of tolerance and coexistence. That the world says we don't want religion, but the world, if we're honest, is very religious. You know, whether it's uh, being accepting of all these other religions or um, I'm not saying go out that we need to go out and hate people who worship other gods. That's not what I'm saying. But this idea of all-inclusive, where it's all just one thing. You know, Ash and I finished watching uh, the show Lost the other night on Netflix. And the last episode is all about that. It's all coexist, and It's like a really interesting show. And the last 10 minutes are like even more garbage than some of it. But this idea, this in the culture that you worship who you want to worship, I'll worship who you want to worship. You be zealous for what you want to be zealous for. You know, that nothing is wrong, that everything is right. If it's right to you, go for it. If it's right to me, I'll go for it. Um, Except the only thing that's wrong in this modern day and age, really, is saying that things are right and wrong. It's saying that things that people want to do may be wrong. Um, You know, again, by any standard, that's not the standard that society has come up with on its own. And really, everyone has become super sensitive. Um, we have training at work. We have training, uh, whether it's indoctrination in the news or in, in society, about how to act or how to be. Um, you have to be very careful about what you say or what you don't say or what you do or what you don't do. You know, free speech is eroding in this land. You know, and, and when, when we don't agree with those things, people lie and they jump to conclusions. There's label. They label people. There's libel. There's slander. Uh, When you disagree, even if it's not true. You know, you read a news story from one outlet and you read a news story from another outlet and you'll see that there's a slant. There's a a, a label put on people, a label uh, put on certain points of view that may not uh, really be there, that they twist the facts to go their way. But people are very religious about these things. And I think part of the reason why people are so sensitive is well, have you ever stepped on something? You know, yesterday I took out the trash. And I was walking over there, and I I felt something sharp in my shoe, and I didn't know what it was, so I took my shoe off, and it was a tiny little pine needle, tiny little one. Somehow i got in there, and uh, it was poking me in the foot, so I had to to take it out. You know, every time I step, it would hurt. But when I wasn't stepping, it, it, it wouldn't hurt. And I think that that's why people are so sensitive these days, because they're all stuck through, they're all pierced through with some type of sin that is really hurting them. And as soon as you put a little pressure on it, as soon as you say, oh, that's probably not the best thing to do, or I disagree with that, Ow people get sensitive i mean you and i might know what it's like to that way when you're in a relationship or when you work you know you got a lot of pressure on you maybe and someone it's that straw that breaks the camel's back but i think that that's why people are so sensitive about every little thing these days because they're all so caught up in sin that the moment you begin to put a little extra pressure on their lives a little uh uh uh, goads as, as god might say paul it's hard for you to kick against the goads right it hurts that they begin to to cry out and say oh no way you're you're a bigot or You're doing this the wrong way, or you can't say that. But also, I think people are very religious about their interests today, whether it's hobbies, movies, music, subculture. You know, you think of things like Comic Con or South by Southwest, music festivals, whether it's certain types of exercise, CrossFit or yoga or whatever it is, dieting, fashion, foods, TV shows. People get very passionately religious about any of these things that they get into, um, and I not that there's anything really wrong being passionate about going to CrossFit or going to a music festival or something. But I think as we begin to look, we see all the, you know, like Burning Man Festival, all these different like things that are really getting really passionate and really uh, religious. And I think everyone is passionately religious about everything but Christianity today. And sadly to say, I think that's even Christians are passionate about anything but Christianity. You know, myself included from time to time, um, which is definitely when I find that I need to repent. But as Paul walked around, these things were obvious to him. He just simply observed. You know, and a lot of, a lot of learning can be done through observation. You know, you watch a video, you read a book, you, you apprentice someone and you watch what they do. But as he walks through the town, he's able to observe and say, oh, well, look at all these things that they worship. You know, no one needed to tell them that they were worshiping other gods. It was very evident in their lives. And I think that what we worship is also evident in our lives. And what the world worships is very evident in their lives as well. That you know, it's it's kind of obvious uh, in during football season what someone's favorite team is if they're a football fan. You know, they've got the stickers on their car, maybe they're wearing the jersey, maybe they're talking about it at work. It's very obvious. I'm not saying that you know if you're a football fan you're worshiping an idol, but I'm saying that the more passionate you are about something, the more obvious it becomes that you are passionate about that for for good or wrong. You just can't hide it after um, a while. That's the same thing with our relationship with the Lord. Eventually, it's going to come out if we're passionate about it. Eventually, it's going to be obvious if we're obeying him or not. But they had these objects of their worship. And that word objects of worship can be translated devotions things that people were devoted to in a religious sense. And we think as Christians, we have our devotions in the morning. Maybe maybe we're reading a little scripture. Maybe we've got our daily bread or whatever it is, and we have our devotional time. But that's sort of what this word here is, that every day they're going to make sure they're doing this. They're going to make sure that they're touching the idol on the way out of the house or whatever they need to do. Um, but whatever is religiously honored is an object of worship, You know, whether it's a temple, an altar, a statue, an image. That these people were about the religious things all the time. You know, um, I think it's the word hypocrite, but it talks about you know when they would sell a statue or sell, uh, really, I guess in most sense, it was probably an idol in the marketplace. Where if the guy when he was carving it, the nose broke broke off, he might put a little bit of a wax in the nose, and then the nose would melt. And a hypocrites actually a little different, but uh, but basically they this was in their society. This was something that was very familiar to them. Where you know, we think of idols and things. We think of more other other cultures where maybe you meet someone from uh, another nation, they move over here and they have a shrine in their house. We're not so accustomed to that anymore. But this was something that was very um, obvious to them. And in this area, they had statues to all these gods. You know that Greece had so many gods, they wanted to make sure that they reverenced each one, that they didn't miss one. To such a point where that they had a statue maybe with nothing on it that just said to the unknown god. You know, this empty podium, this empty shrine that said to the unknown God. And I think it's to not offend a God that they may have missed. You know, they're like, we worship so many gods. Maybe in our worship of all these gods, maybe we haven't come to a reason of knowledge of saying that there's a God out there. So let's make a statue to him. That way, if he ever does show up, you know, he was not going to be offended. He's not going to be offended. Um, you know, and I think that that is prophetic and profound in and of itself, that they would have this podium to an unknown God. You know, I think if we've missed God, um, you know, here's a place that we want to make sure that we know we've missed you, God. Uh, But they didn't know God. If they knew God, they would realize that the real offense to him was not that they didn't know him, but that they (laughs) didn't care to know him. That they didn't say, well, there is an unknown God. Maybe we should pursue this unknown God. Instead, we've pursued our other idols. You know, that they missed him. You know, then how do they know that, that they wouldn't be offending him by missing him? Like I said, how would they know that God wouldn't be offended if he came down that this empty little podium wouldn't be an offense to him to not knowing him? But I ask, is God offended by those who don't know him? Is God offended by a person who doesn't know him? Um, you know, the sin is an offense to God. God talks about things that are an abomination and people that practice these things must be kept away. Um, but what does the scripture say? You know, Romans 5, 8-11 says that, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled with God uh, through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Again, that God was offended uh, by our sin, but He was offended to the point where not where He cast us off forever, but where He sent His own Son to die for you and me before we knew Him, before we can erect some altar to the unknown God, before you and I were even born. God came and died for us. You know, I think that that's that's a big difference. You know, that when the world or even you and I are offended, we put someone away. Maybe we slander them or label them or seek revenge on them or gossip or backbite or want to do anything to keep them away from us. Um, but God was different. He did everything to get us back, even to the point where he sent his son to die for us. That Even though we offended him, so to speak, through sin, he would not let that get in the way of having a relationship with us. We let it get in the way of having a relationship with him, but he did everything possible uh, to make sure that it wouldn't get in the way. You know, so what does God do? He sends his son to die for them. He does everything. God does everything. When we're offended, we don't, we don't want to do anything. We'll do everything to keep them away, but God will do everything to draw us near. Um, and what does Paul say? He says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaimed to you. You've got all these temples and all these priests and all these people and all these ideas. And Paul says, you've got no one here to tell you about the unknown God. Let me tell you about the God who's unknown to you. He's not really unknown because we can know him, um, you know, as we see that creation reveals him. And that's what he starts out with, um, is creation, as we'll see here in a minute. But can we really worship a God we don't know? Can we really worship a God we don't know? If we say, there's an unknown God and we have a statue to you over here. We, we know that you're out there, but we don't really know you. Can we really worship him? Um, you know, can we really have a relationship with someone we don't know? I think that ends up being stalking, you know? Or, you know, maybe you're like, I really like Brad Pitt, but you met Brad Pitt on the street. He would have no idea who you are. It's not a relationship. Um, it's fantasy. It's not real, you know? And even the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you to those who claim they knew God, but didn't have that relationship with him. You know, I think maybe it's a nice gesture for them to have this statue in the middle of their idolatry, to have another statue. Maybe there's someone we missed. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe there's some open-mindedness there. Um, but Paul finds it as a, an open door to share the gospel. And think of when someone asks you for prayer, but they're not a believer. That's an open door. That's their statue to an unknown God. They may worship other things in life, but they realize you worship a God that I don't really know, would you please pray for me? Would you please put something up? I know that there's something there that, that I'm not aware of, whether they realize it or not. Maybe when they come to church on Christmas or Easter or etc. you know, it's an unknown God. You go day to day about their lives and you wouldn't know God is in their life at all. And then Christmas and Easter, they show up and I'm not necessarily knocking that, but that's an opportunity, an open door for that unknown God. You know, you don't know God, Paul says You may think you do because you built this statue. You think you don't. You think there's no way for you to know him, so you just put this statue there. But let me introduce him to you for real—that he's a real God. And Paul begins to introduce himself, as we saw, as a spokesman for the unknown God. Paul doesn't give his resume, like we see in other places. I Paul, you know, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, I went to this, you know, I was raised here, I speak this, I do this. Paul simply says that. He's a spokesman for the unknown God. Let me introduce to you the unknown God. You know why? Because I don't think that it would mean anything. He said, hey, I'm a a student of Gamaliel. They'd be like, who? Who? We don't care about Jewish culture. We're Greek here. And in fact, it might even cause a deeper separation. A deeper separation where they might have heard him on one hand, but now that he introduces this thing that makes him foreign to them, it might create things uh, more separately there. Like sometimes if someone asked asked me... um, uh, like when I'm out at a restaurant and they're like, well, "Here's the beer menu or the wine menu and whatever." I I just don't drink, but I'm not going to say, "Oh, well, I don't drink." I say, "No, thank you." You know, I don't want to put up a barrier there. If they keep offering it to me, eventually They say, "You know," they say, well, "Why don't you want it?" I'm like, "Well, then I don't drink." You know, like people at work, you know, every Friday they open up the beer closet. They call it at five o'clock, and you know, after a while they're like, "How come you don't have any?" I'm like, "Oh, well, I don't drink." And, you know, it's open up doors for conversations in that matter, but but I'm not. I don't drink. I'm not going to the beer closet. You know, it clearly it's a separation, an unneeded wall that doesn't really need um, to be there. But let's go on. Verse 24 through 28. It says, God, Paul says, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their preappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And we'll stop there. You know, where does Paul start introducing God? The very beginning at creation. Paul says this unknown God, well, guess what? The one, he's the one who really made everything. He's the one who made heaven and earth. He's the one who's in control of everything. And I love how he transitions to the practical that God made everything, but that he doesn't live in something man builds right away. He goes from, this is the God who made everything to then. Why would he need to dwell in an idol? Why would he need to dwell in a temple made with human hands? Um, or even then, in a sense of re- a religious system of laws and works that man has come up with. You know, Second Samuel 7, 1-7 says, um, uh, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies all around, the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is King David, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside of tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know that God is saying, David... You know, David wants to build God a temple. He realizes, I live in a mansion. God's outside in a, in a cardboard box. Let me go build him something. The prophet says, that's a good idea. Prophet goes home and God says, that's not a good idea. I don't, I don't need a temple built for me. And that's what God says. Did I ever complain? Did I ever ask for anything? No, I don't need it. I dwell in this tabernacle that I might be close to you, but I don't need a fancy house. And, and yet God goes on to say that he's going to allow Solomon to build him a temple that he might be able to reach the nations and be an example and a witness. But God doesn't need it. God didn't need a temple. God walked on the earth before then, too. You know, in Psalm 50, 7 through 15, um, it says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Well eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats, offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in a day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God says, Yeah, I've instituted the the, the system of forgiveness of sins through sacrifice as a picture of my Messiah to come. But do I need you to sacrifice to me that I might be better off? Do I need you to bring me the goats out of your field or the cows out of the yard that I might eat something because I'm hungry? God says, no, even if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you I made everything. I don't need you to feed me. Um, You know, what I want you to do instead is be thankful, to say good to your promises to me and to others and to call upon me when you're in trouble and I'll deliver you. That's what God says he wants. He doesn't need all this sacrifice. Yeah, we need it in a sense to forgive our sin, but God doesn't need it to be better off. You know, men's hands, our hands can't worship God in physicality and works. God is eternal. God is, again, this unapproachable light. How can anything that our little dirt made hands are really going to make anything that's ever going to make God any richer or make God any holier or give God anything that he doesn't already have or can't already take? You know, God could take our life away at any moment. So why would we have to give him anything um, in that nature? You know, Jesus said uh, to the Samaritan woman of the well in John four twenty four God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We must worship in spirit and truth, not in a place, not in a building, not in a system, so to speak. And I don't mean to say, well, that means you don't have to be a Christian. But what I'm saying is that we don't need to, to construct some, some object of worship to him, some method of worship to him. That he hasn't prescribed in itself that that isn't something that's spiritual isn't something that is truthful it would be really like my kids trying to pay me back and they don't even get allowance yet Uh, but imagine uh i said jacob pay me for your diapers how would he ever pay me for those diapers he couldn't even go out and get a job let alone know what a job is, let alone what money is, let alone know how much to count, how much to give me. There's no way he could ever pay me. I mean, you know, maybe 20 years from now, i said, Jacob, <laughs> you know how many diapers I bought for you? <laughs> And I'd be like, didn't God give you a job, Dad? And did you teach me that God is the one who provides? Yes, you're right. <laughs> but sincerely, that he never has to pay me for those things. And that's the same way with God. There's no way that we could ever even figure out a way to come up with the money to pay him back. And even if we did, it would be his money. It would be like if I gave him allowance, and he wanted to give me the allowance back. Uh, thanks, Jake. That was mine anyway. You know, I went to the bank and took that money out for you or whatever. I transferred it into your account by the time he gets an allowance. You know, there's no way. And it's the same way with God. There's nothing that we can do in our own strength that's ever going to make God richer. It's ever going to pay God back. You know, yeah, he's pleased. Yeah, it might be a nice gesture. Thank you, Jacob, for giving me 10% of your allowance, you know, but sincerely, he doesn't need it. You know, he's not going to gain anything. In fact, he gave up everything. He gave his son, Jesus. He paid above and beyond that we might be able to have a relationship with him. And again, all we have to do to receive that is believe it. Is believe it. We don't need to show up every Sunday and raise our hands and dance around or do whatever it is to gain his affection. We've got it already. We've got it already. <clears throat> but he says here that one blood, you, me, and everyone, we're all people you and me you know they had the, the blood donation uh van over here yesterday that you know you go and give blood anyone can really receive that blood i mean we get into typing and, and things of that nature we need a certain type of blood but the point is is that you're human i'm a human if someone else has blood and they want to give you blood and the types match and everything it's it's human blood it's not it's not going to be bad for you uh, because we're all one people we're all one blood it doesn't matter what we look like on the outside you're a person People from, um, Australia and Canada can get together and have a baby. People from Russia and Africa can get together and have a baby. It's people. People are people. Um, you know, there's no problems there with that. It's really it just comes down to our societal values and our mores. And that I sense, you know, I think in a way that, yeah, we do need to get rid of, um, prejudices and certain things of that nature. But the way that, you know, I don't agree with the way the world does it, but I definitely agree that when the Lord comes back, we're really not going to care then what anyone looks like or or where anyone's from but every nation it says that god knew oklahoma would be a state before he made the earth he knew ancient babylon would be a society how many days babylon would rule how many miles babylon would stretch out how many states america would have how far vladimir putin was going to go that north korea was going to exist that these old societies roman empire how long it would last god knew the days and the times and the boundaries for each of these societies um, and he set them. he set these borders. I mean we look at World War One and two, we saw the reshaping of Europe and how countries got moved around. We see the current reshaping of the Middle East with the Arab uprising and with um, uh, the wars over there, and how powers are changing over there. We see Europe even now being changed with the influx of um, people from other areas of the world. We see North America being reshaped with the influx of people from other areas of the world. We see Asia being reshaped as Russia is going into Ukraine, China, and Russia now are dealing with North Korea and these alliances are forming the political values and, and things really the world is being reshaped very turbulently in our day and age right now. As we go on and we watch our NTV music video awards, the world behind it is all changing very violently and very, uh, abruptly. But why are they all being reshaped? Why are they all being reshaped? Well, I think that they're all really setting up for the one world government, which is already here, which the Bible talks about. It's very obvious that the world is organizing very quick to come together under one banner um, of uh, one rule of law. We're ceding over the power of the control of the Internet. You know, it's something that America created as a defense thing is now being handed over to the world government. We're cutting down our borders because... We don't need sovereignty. We're one world government, right? We're just going to do what we want to do and, and put what we want to put. And we see currencies are changing and politics are changing. But this isn't something new. This is something that's been going on. I mean, yeah, it's accelerating. Yeah, it's getting closer to the end. But First John 4, 2-3 says, By this you shall know that the Spirit of God every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. That the world system has this coming together. We know it's the system of the Antichrist coming together. Well, because they don't like Jesus and they don't want anything to do with Jesus. But climate change, social justice, political correctness, redistribution of wealth, uh, socialism, you know, that's what redistribution of wealth is, rise of kings, eroding of borders, rights, etc. It's all leading up to the end. How can you have one world government if you have these regional governments? And we read in Revelation, you'll see that there's kings and there's, you know, rulers of the areas and that there's a rebellion and these different things that go on there because it's, it's, of course, it's not going to go smoothly. This is an evil empire. Uh, But the world really thinks that it's marching forward in progress. The world thinks, hey, we're moving forward, lean left, lean forward, progressive. We're, going, we're getting somewhere we've never been before. Uh, but in reality, they're marching down a road to hell, regressing further and further from a relationship with God. And again, God knew all this was going to happen. You know, uh, if you read Matthew 24, he talks about times and seasons and wars and rumors and wars and tribulation and things that are going to uh, to come up. Read that later for homework if you want. But this, this isn't an end times message. I don't mean to get on that. You know, I could go on that all day long, Uh, but it's going according to God's plan. It's going according to God's plan. And that's what Paul says. He knows that uh, the borders of every nation, he's done all these things. He's allowed all these things to happen. He's even allowed the world to come together against him in the end days. Why? Verse 27, that men should seek the Lord. He allows tough kings to rise up that people might be oppressed in a sense that people would turn to him, turn to God instead of being uh, stuck in their wealth. And we see that today. Hopefully God is allowing our nation to be uh, upturned in this matter, that we might turn away from our prosperity, which we're obviously losing and turn towards God and seek God. You know why? Because God wants to be found. Paul says he's not far from any one of us, that God is really right in front of our noses, that God isn't some distant, far off absentee parent, but he's right in front of us. And to think about it, you know, if God really wanted not to be found, do you think that he could hide himself from us? Do you think if, if God really didn't want to be found by us, he wouldn't be found by us? You know, we put, my kids like to play hide and seek. If I really didn't want to be found by them, I'd get in the car, go to the airport, <laughs> fly to, you know, another country. They would never find me. I mean, maybe they would one day. And that's a sad thought thinking about that. So I'm sure that happens to some people. Um, But really, that's the same way with God. If God didn't want us to find him, it would be very easy for him to to turn off that ability in our minds or for him to just uh, end it. But we see here that God is seeking the Greeks. You know, they weren't really looking for him. They made this unknown idol just in case they didn't want to offend anybody. And so they made this other idol in case we're not aware of any other God. We'll put him here with this God we don't know about. We'll put him here. And they went about their business. So what happens God, through all these circumstances we've been reading about in Paul's life, gets Paul in a boat. Paul can't go anywhere else, so they stuff him in Athens, and when he's in Athens, what does he see? This opportunity to share with these people. If anything, that's God saying, Hey, I want you guys to come to know me. Psalm fourteen one through three says, um, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God and they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Uh, no, not one that people aren't even seeking God, that it's God who sought us, that you and I, when, when we uh, came into know the Lord, I guarantee that, yeah, maybe we were star looking for answers, but that God was really uh, seeking us out, that if God wasn't seeking us out, we probably would just continue in our sin to the point of death. But as Paul says here, he begins to quote their own poets. I mean, think about Paul would be quoting Coldplay or uh, Ariana Grande or some rap star or somebody else in modern society. You know, we don't really have poets anymore. (laughs) Or the people who know poetry probably aren't really well known. But he quotes them here. He says, uh, even your own poets have gotten a piece of truth here that we are all God's offspring. And indeed, all, God, all truth is God's truth, if indeed it's truth. I'm not saying that things that people claim are truth are God's truth, but if th- something's real, uh, well, God made it. You know, Pilate asked, what is truth? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say it to Pilate, but he said that in uh, Scripture, John fourteen six. But the Greeks claim to be searching for truth. And the truth was their bedrock of their society. This, this seeking out of truth was the bedrock of their society, their, uh, their high-mindedness, as we, we looked at. you know. And to me, that sounds a lot like today with us, with science. And I like science. I have friends who are actually scientists, and they love the Lord, and they love science, But there's definitely a a split somewhere along the line that you're doing science and then it becomes religion when you start interfering and start saying, well, we want it to meet our own expectations as opposed to just look at the evidence. I mean, he sends me articles all the time. He's like, if they just looked at the evidence. Um, But I think the problem is there that when we find the truth. Do we accept it? When we're seeking the answers to something and we come upon the actual answer to it, do we accept it or do we say, I don't really like that answer. So let me look for another answer. And how often do we do that when we rationalize something in our lives? We're looking for an answer to something. Maybe God gives us an answer and we go, I don't really like that. Let me go ask somebody else. Let me go read another passage of scripture. Let me try and figure it out a different way. You know, because uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. You know, that, that God says, you will find me because I want you to find me. But you need to seek me with your whole heart. Because if we haven't found God yet, It's because we haven't really sought him completely yet. Um, Or if we have, we get to the point where we go, "Uh, I don't really like that answer. I don't know if I can believe in a God who, whatever we want to put there is in our excuse. Um, But, you know, don't fear. If you haven't found God yet, if you haven't found him in the answer you're looking for, keep seeking him. Keep knocking, keep asking because God is there. You know why? Because he's seeking you and he's right in front of you. You know, sometimes we get in a panic when we're looking for an answer and we're not getting it. Well, remember that God is, is seeking you probably more than, than you or I are seeking him. And, and that's a comfort because, again, if, if he didn't want to be found by us, there'd be no way for that to happen. And let's go on. Verse 29. Therefore, Paul says, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You know, Greek culture, had a lot of art. Um, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And we'll stop there for now. You know, what is it there for? You know, every time we look back that this is a continuing of the scripture of the idea. But he says, because we are the offspring of God. Again, he goes back to Genesis. Not again that everyone's a child of God in the sense where people think, oh, we're all children of God and we're all okay. But the sense that we're made in God's image, that God made you and made me. And if He made you and made me, why would He want anything uh, less than you or me to dwell in? If we're the pinnacle of God's creation, why would He want some piece of rock that we made to dwell in? He wants to dwell in you or I. But we think of that even in modern humanism, and people have kind of realized that where we are pretty special, we are made pretty great, and we've begun to worship ourselves and our own ideals and ideologies. But even then, we realize that, well, we don't know how all this stuff got here, and so we've come up with these theories, but even science and all its theories, people are turning to alien life coming and seeding our planet. Aliens that we're all looking, and we're setting up telescopes to look out and look for a higher intelligence than us. You know, we wanna find intelligent life in the universe, I wanna find intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> I think that we haven't even found that here yet. But if we're so smart, why do we do dumb things and worship dumb things? Why do we do that? If we're such a smart culture and smart society, why do we do such dumb things and such wrong things to each other? I think it's because sin makes us numb and idols make us dumb. When we get turned over to sin, we get numb to right and wrong. We get numb to finding out answers. And when we worship an idol, we become like them. The scripture says that an idol, they can't see, hear, speak, or do anything. That's the same way to us. When we bow down and we worship a piece of stone, um, we're going to become like it because it's not going to tell us what to do. So we're going to be stuck. You know, Habakkuk Two eighteen through 20 says what prophet is the image that its maker should carve it the molded image a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols woe to him who says to wood awake to silent stone arise it shall teach behold it is overlaid with gold and silver yet in it there is no breath at all but the lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him you know that there is a real danger in worshiping idols and it really just brings woes on us. We want answers. We want prosperity. We want peace. But when we worship anything but the real God, we worship an idol. We're going to get anything but what we need. But it says here, and this is the crux, you know, maybe you could have named this this message. Uh, we are also his offspring, you know, but I, I don't think that that's the message here today. The message is that, that there are these, truly, there were these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands everyone to, to repent, that God overlooked it. You know, Jews were his people before Jesus and he gave people an opportunity to come to him through the Jewish people, but people, there was all this idolatry and he overlooked it for a season. But now that Jesus came to die on the cross, God says, all right, I'm done overlooking your idolatry. I've, I've taken care of that on the cross. Now judgment will be coming, but I've given you a way to get, escape that judgment. And God is prolonging the time of judgment to come. He's not overlooking it anymore because he sent Jesus to take the punishment for the sin of idolatry. And he's saying, all right, guys, you, need, you really need to cut it out now. You know, just like when you have kids and they're acting up or doing something, you kind of let them go for a little while and kind of hope and pray that they stop. But at some point you step in and say, all right, that's enough. You know, get down, Jacob, get down. <laughs> You're at the edge now. You need to get off. And that's the same way with the Lord that um, uh, he says the time it's enough is enough. It's time to repent. You know, Second Peter 3, 9 talks about the Lord not being slack concerning his promise that people were in the last days to say, hey, he's been saying he's coming back forever and he's not coming back and and Peter says no he, he's promised that he's coming back and he's given you time to repent but Paul says here that you know we have the assurance of the resurrection that it's Jesus that Jesus came back that that's our guarantee of salvation is the resurrection that that's the reason is that because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be assured that we have forgiveness of sin and um, a, a way back to know the unknown God. Let's go on and we'll finish out here. Uh, verse 32 says, And when they had heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them, and however some men joined him and believed, and among them uh, Dionysius the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There we see here, as soon as Paul got to the resurrection, he didn't get very far. I love Paul's got a good method here. He says the unknown God, talk about creation, he's the God who made everything, even your poet said worship, uh, God doesn't need idols. He wants you to know him. And because of that, he came back from the dead that people reacted to that in a split way. Some mocked it, some oh, resurrection of the dead. That's impossible. You know, you think of today where people, you might mention that Jesus or that He came back from the dead or that he's given you new life. People will look at you like you've got two heads. Like that's impossible. You know that there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. You can't come back from the dead. Once, once you die, that's it, man. It's, it's nothing after that. But Paul says different. So they mock him. Um, but the others say they want to hear it again. They want to hear it again. And that reminds me of what we'd finished reading the last at the end of last time, where people would come with these ideas and a circular reason. Oh, that's a good idea. Why don't you come back next week and we'll talk about it some more. But they wouldn't make a decision. I think, you know, as we see that when evangelism goes on, when an opportunity to come to know the Lord uh, happens, people will react that way. They mock it or they say, I'm not really ready yet. Let's just talk about it again some other time. So what did Paul do? He, well, he stayed there and kept pleading with them. No, it says that he left So Paul said, okay. And he left. And interesting commentary here says that Paul wanted to talk about Jesus. He could have, if he wanted to, he stayed there and discussed Greek philosophy all day long, but Paul was not interested. This commentator says, Um, If he couldn't talk about Jesus, he didn't have much to say. Without a doubt, Paul was really just beginning a sermon. Far more than wanting to quote Greek poets, he wanted to tell them about Jesus. But as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, that stopped him short. Certainly, Paul discussed more with people one-on-one. But he was prevented from saying all he wanted to in his speech in the Areopagus, uh, David Guzik's commentary. You know, that Paul, as soon as he got to this, they shut him down. They said, all right, that's enough. No more talking about this. You're crazy, whatever. And other people say, we'll hear about it another time. It's kind of that, we don't want to offend you, but come back another time. You know, why don't you come back next time? And that means, you know, ever going to an interview and, you know, like, we'll be in touch. Yeah, you, you won't be in touch. You'll get a letter in the mail that you weren't offered the job. That's sort of what stayed, what happened here. But a few men and women did hear and did believe. And, and, and that was their response. You know, they joined Paul and they left this culture and they left this city behind, so to speak. Um, Dionysius was one of the leaders of the Areopagus. Think of him as like a senator or, or someone influential there. You know, and this uh, Lady Damaris is named. I couldn't find anything on her. Uh, but she must have been pretty prominent or perhaps known by the church today. Otherwise, Luke probably wouldn't have mentioned her name. And if we don't know the name... I'm not going to tell you your name. You know, I have some friends somewhere. I'm not going to tell you their name because you don't know who they are. I'll just say, I have some friends somewhere. Um, but that these people came to him that, that although it could look like a failure, Paul got shut down and went out, other people heard it and said, yeah, we want to know more. And, and even then they ended up believing. But we see here that as we close that these really were times of ignorance, times of ignorance. They claimed to be times of knowledge, times of enlightenment, times of uh, prosperity, but they were really times of ignorance. You know, I'll read a couple of verses here. First Corinthians ten, twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Proverbs sixteen, eighteen. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, God is giving uh, us and everyone a chance to, to come to know Him. You know, times are getting worse. You just read the news. Uh, you know, I think about when I got saved to now uh, just those few short years. The difference that's gone on in the world, the amount that the world has corrupted and gotten worse and worse in just a few short years, time is running out. Time is running out. You know, God describes it as birth pangs, that as the world begins to get ready to give birth here, uh, more and more is going on. Except this time, it's not a baby coming. Except this time, it's not baby Jesus coming anymore, but it's a righteous king returning to a sinful and fallen world that wants to do anything to prevent him from taking over. I mean, that's why the one world government's coming together. That's why eventually the enemy is going to set up the Antichrist and his kingdom. And they're going to have that final battle because they don't want Jesus to rule and reign where it's going to come down to an actual battle. But Jesus is going to come down as we read the scriptures and it's no problem for him. Um, but again, that's because God doesn't want us to know death or to know judgment. He doesn't want us to be ignorant and not know him. To be ignorant is to not know something. Um, but he wants us to know him. And that for real, not by a statue, not by some system of laws or some system of worship that he doesn't live in or dwell in, but to actually know God. You know, again, it's not a, uh, this wasn't a message about being offspring of God, but it was a message a message of warning and a wake-up call to the ignorance in our lives of God, who, of who God really is. And I believe we all know God for who he really is in here. But I think in a sense that when we read this area of Scripture, God's saying, hey, to that culture, to that society that is so wrapped up in idolatry and anything but God, this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. And you may dismiss that wake-up call as soon as it happens. They hit the snooze button pretty quick on Paul. Um, but God uh, wants them to repent and want, wants to give them an opportunity to repent even if they weren't looking for it. And a few verses here as we close out. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And Psalm fifty one, sixteen and seventeen. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Hosea 6, 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That even though they have the statute to the unknown God, and even though there's things in life that we may think we don't know, God says to, to them and to us that he's shown us what is good. He's shown us Jesus. And the way to Jesus is not through a system of religion or a system of worship. But it's through a a contrite heart and a repentant heart and coming to know him uh, for who who he really is. And Father, we ask that this morning and in in our lives, God, that we would really know you, that we wouldn't sit back and rest in some system that God gives us no real rest, but God, to really know you, to pray to you and worship you and seek you, God, while you may be found, like the scripture says, that today is a day of salvation. And Lord, I thank you that um, I know everyone here knows you and is saved. But God, if there's anyone listening, Or anyone this week that we come in contact with, would they respond to you? Would they confess you as the Lord Jesus and repent of their sins and uh, come into a a real relationship with you and turn from idols and turn towards you, God, the living God? And we worship you and thank you, God, that that you would make yourself known to us, God. We thank you, God, that you've given us such great provision um, in all areas of our life, Lord. Uh, Even if we feel like we're poor, we're still very rich compared to a lot of people on the earth. And we pray that you would meet their needs. God, as you meet ours. And God, help us to uh, just follow you and trust you. And God, would you come back? Come back soon, Lord. And uh, we don't want to be here for the false kingdom. We want to be here for your kingdom. Let me ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.